This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. To be honest, I'm a, a little bit intimidated by uh, the message today, knowing how to properly uh, deliver it. Uh, I, I'm, I've been going through a series called The Spiritual Biography of a Nation, which is uh, it's different than just a history lesson. It is sort of showing the foundations of how our country came into being and how it uh, became truly a light unto uh, a dark world and became the delivery point of more gospel tears than the world has ever seen. What was the formation of that? And there's, there's a challenge in this study because what I see is there was a great darkness upon this land, a great light shone, and that I'm, I'm watching. In my very generation, I'm watching the light go out in my very lifetime. And that, that's a tension in my soul, and it's a hard thing to deal with because I don't look at history with rose-colored glasses. There's, there's certain techniques that nations use where they take their heroes and they, uh, they remove all uh, failure and all inadequacy and all weakness out of them and turn them into superhumans. And then they cleanse their history of anything that would look unpatriotic or anything that would look like it would go in the opposite direction. And then they create this this history lesson that is going to say, see, this is why you can be proud to be a citizen of this country. And I understand, it's a, it's a technique, and part of it is just the way we work as humans. And part of it might even be good. I mean, if I'm gonna be thinking about my family history, I'm going to not just meditate and muse upon the things that were bad and the bad decisions, I wanna think about the things that were good. When you get to a funeral, uh, very rarely, I'm, I'm guessing there probably is the exception, uh, do people get up and start talking about what was wrong with the person. In fact, you're, you're almost shocked. Every time you go to a, a funeral, everyone's always saying, and they were such a wonderful person. It's like, wow, everyone is a wonderful person. <laughs> and that's the way we are as humans when we look back upon history. There's a healthy way of actually garnering out and gaining out and gleaning the positives out of it. I, I'm not afraid of the negatives. I really am not. I'm not afraid of the fact that it's a whole bunch of humans coming together and working. And there's the same friction points in every nation throughout history. You have people that disagree. You look at the history of the church and you're going to see the same thing. I mean, God is unashamed to show 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. I mean, this is a church that is a mess. And God doesn't seem to back away. In fact, he carries along Paul by his Holy Spirit to write this book and to showcase the fact that even the church of Jesus Christ can have disagreement and division. And terrible things can happen in the church of Jesus Christ. You, have you read the Bible? You read some of the things that even, uh, Paul's like, I am horrified to hear this is happening in this church. I mean, you'd think God would scrub that out. And he'd be like, I don't want anyone to see that. You see, God is unashamed of allowing us to see foibles to see failures, because he knows that he uses these things to teach us. 
They're not his failures. They're our failures. Men and women fail. And as a result, there is nothing about me loving my country that means I have to scrub out history and eliminate all the bad and uh, the, the malodors out of it to somehow make it sweet-smelling. I believe that we have an incredible history even with our foibles. I believe that God has done something profound and it teaches me, it instructs me, and it does not mean I need to overlook the bad things that happened because there's plenty of them. There's plenty. If I were just to take a whole little bit of time and teach you about bad things that have been done on this soil, a whole bunch of them would exist. Could you imagine? I'm like, I start telling you every murder that has ever taken place in American history. Yeah, terrible things have happened on this soil. However, God has done something in and through this land that is unprecedented in history. He has created a factory of saints, for saints, to actually be trained and to gain a vision to go into the world and to share the light of the gospel. Now, I recognize that's not where we're at now. Something has happened. And that's part of why I want to share our history because there's a parallel that is taking place. This land was swallowed up in darkness, evil and violence. And then the light of the gospel came in. And what happened? It was turned into a land of peace and liberty, of protection for the weak. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Justice ruled in this country. And then what happened? We forgot our heritage. And we've returned once again to the enslavement to darkness, where we're now seeing violence once again rule and reign in this country. Justice is no longer served. Whoa, what's happened? You see, this is a cyclical pattern in history that when a people forsakes and forgets its root system, when they turn away from God, this is what happens. You can study it all throughout the history of Israel and Judah. You can see these nations and the cycles that they go through. They repent and they come back to God and then they fall into disrepair. And the same behaviors happen and the same judgments come upon them. I want to learn. I still have a heart for this country to be something to be what God intended it to be. I do. And maybe I'm, it's just wishful thinking. It's, it's God's already going to judge it. It's going downhill. However, I also see awakenings throughout our history that give me a sense of hope to recognize that God still desires mercy over judgment. He leans towards being merciful. He doesn't lean away from it. He leans towards it. So this is called Grains of Wheat. It is part eight in the series. And it's a difficult message to give as you will uh, see and understand as, as I go through it. But uh, it's based on a, a, a premise and that is this idea that is being brought out today is America before the European arrival was a place of great happiness, sweetness, and life, and nobility, and honor. And we came in with our smallpox, and we messed it up. We came in with our violence, and we exterminated people we didn't like. And 
when this recasting of history takes place, it really gums it up for most of us to really understand and swallow what God did. And so over the past weeks, I've been separating out the two movements. We have the conquistador movement and we have the missionary movement. The conquistadors were a very real movement. It was a movement that was not sponsored by God. It was a movement sponsored by greed, ambition. And this dark desire, this malevolence, which uh, came, yes, out of Europe, it's undoubted, and it did flow out of Christopher Columbus's discovery of this new world, and yet it went to Central and South America. And in a sense, God is going to preserve North America for a different purpose. He is going to preserve it because at first they don't see gold there. And so the conquistadors, that's the, all they care about is the gold. So they're going to go to the Aztecs and the Incan kingdoms and they're going to strip them bare. They're going to bring genocide and just terrible barbarities uh, to that, that territory. So I get it. You know, if that's what we were studying and we were studying the conquistadors and say, Eric, what's your opinion on that? I would say it's devilish. It's demonic. It is horrible. It's the worst that men can do. And so, yes, I see that. However, the history of North America is different. Darkness already ruled here. Barbarity, violence, and you could even say genocide already ruled over this territory. But because the conquistadors do not see gold, they call it God-forsaken territory. And when they see New Mexico and Arizona, and they're like, there's no gold there. We're not going up in that direction. And so as a result, the missionaries instead go in that direction because they see lost souls. And so they begin to go into, the, into that territory in the Southwest to go after souls. You're going to see missions set up all over the Southwest. And then the French missionaries are going to come into what's called New France, which is going to be up through the Canadian areas into Illinois and Michigan and down the Mississippi River. And you're going to begin to see the formation of what we would understand as the Louisiana Purchase. And so the French are going to take that territory, and why? What what are they doing? They're actually sending missionaries. They're after souls. You're going to see all sorts of movements like this throughout our country, is the discoverers, the ones that are going to make the maps, ironically, even though it's not oftentimes told us this, are missionaries. They're actually going to share the gospel. But they love adventure too. There's something in the air back in this time period that loves to take risk. It's a different rendition of Christianity. And the more I've I've studied it, the more I'm just staring back at it going, wow, have we lost something. It's interesting because we, I mean, I run a mission society. I mean, that's what we do. We, We train up people to think outward. And yet, I don't know how to just leap over this river to this other side and go, I want to be on that other side. This radical givenness, we have a radical self-preservation in America. This is like a radical givenness. And I'm not exactly sure how to push a reset button on our version of Christianity to get that. But it's like, God, I think we got the wrong version. I I don't want that anymore. I don't want the self-preserving type of Christianity that's like, well, here's how you best take care of yourself. I want, here's how you best deliver the gospel to the nations. I want that one. And it inspires me as I study the Franciscans, as I study the Jesuits, 
we're getting a, what we could call the Catholic influence, which many of us as Protestants or evangelicals, we resist. And so we're like, well, that, that's, that, that has no validity in my mind. And yet, if you're going to look at the beginnings of America, you have to acknowledge it. Now remember, back 1519 was when the uh, Reformation is going to take place. Before that, you only had the Catholic Church. It's the only church that existed. It was just the worldwide church is what the Catholic means. It's the, it's the whole thing. And so in and amidst it, there are real genuine Christians that are being stirred. And in this time period of the age of discovery is also the age of missions. This is the time period where missions is being awakened within the church. You have these dark ages and this whole season when the way to be spiritual was to separate from the world and go into a monastery. And then suddenly they're going to begin to question that. It's like, I think we're carriers of a light. I think we can't just hold this up and hide it under a bushel. We actually need to take it into the world. And you're going to begin to see this radical edge to spiritual, spirituality begin to come about, which is like, we should be willing to go into the darkest places and share the gospel. And then this becomes, if this is going to be a funny way of saying it, hip within Christianity. It becomes the idea of ideas and all the young guys begin to lean towards it. Right now, our young guys, when this is what I've seen, a young guy gets awakened to Jesus Christ and he's at the radical readiness point. And then he gets caught in the trap of doctrinal intelligence. And, it, and he spends all of his best energies in being smart for Christianity as opposed to being given. And it really has bothered me for a long time. Now, that doesn't mean I'm against using your mind and being well-groomed intellectually. I just don't like the fact that I see these guys, these young guys, being taken captive to be in a library instead of on the field. And so there's something that is different. Back in these days, what you saw were some of the best scholars were actually radically given in the field. I'm more interested in that. Reset. What do we need to do to get this? And so I'm going to go through... Actually, just two guys. That's all I'm going to do. But I'm, I'm covering sort of a, a wide swath of American history because I'm giving, I was trying to figure out how do I explain this? How do I explain what this country was like before the light of the gospel came? See, I am, I am very uh, fond of Native Americans. I have no issue with Native Americans. I'm fond of Spaniards, I'm fond of Frenchmen, I'm fond of British people, I'm fond of Americans. Uh, and so there is no distinguishing in me of race in this. It has to do with realities. This country was swallowed up in darkness. It was a very, very dangerous and bad place. It doesn't mean it didn't have beauty. It, may, it means that it was swallowed up. Like the island of Hispaniola, which is now Dominican Republic and Haiti, is a beautiful place. However, it is still swallowed up. And as a result, though it is beautiful in Haiti, and many of us that have been there can attest to that, it is gorgeous down there. But you almost feel an ache when you see it because it's like a beauty that is taken captive. And it's not a beauty that is delightful. It is a beauty that is haunting. And that's the way this landscape was. So what was America before? So before the invasion of these Europeans, what was it like? The myth is that it was a peaceful place of love and harmony. 
the truth. It was a land swallowed in darkness, evil, fear, and cruelty. Now, what's interesting is we have very detailed accounts of all of these missionaries coming over. These are some of the best scholars that were coming over here in the world at the time. And they were the ones making the maps. They were also the ones chronicling the behavior of the tribes. And so as a result, we have a lot of data as far as what this country was like. And strangely, it's very similar to all the other tribes. If you were to uh, study Don Richardson's work and when he, he writes the book, Lords of the Earth, you'd be like, that's strange. But it's very similar to the way that early Americans are described before the light of the gospel came. Uh, you know, you study African tribes and you study David Livingston and things like that, and you're like, that's weird. It's the same behavior. It's darkness. And when darkness rules, there are certain qualities that begin to come forth. Fear is the dominant characteristic. Violence is always an attribute. It does not mean that there aren't noble people in the midst of all of that, that when the light of Christ comes, they resonate it with, it with it very quickly and they want to stand because men still have conscience. And so even though there can be nobility in it, it is a territory ruled by darkness. What were the natives of America like before? So the myth is that they were noble savages. The truth is they were depraved savages. There's a difference between the two. The term noble savage is going to actually emerge uh, in, well, I'll just read it here. Peter Marshall is going to say, the myth of the noble savage was just that, a myth that was created a century later by romantic English poets and artists who had never crossed the ocean themselves, let alone witnessed the horrors of tribal warfare and custom. The lives of these Indians were an unending tableau of fear and hatred of other tribes and a dawn-to-dusk struggle for survival. If you were to study the indigenous of Papua New Guinea and to understand their fear, their territorial fears, where they knew that they could be invaded at any time, and the violence, what you train for from the youngest age as a, as a boy is for violence. You are trained to kill. You are trained to remove heads. You are trained to eat the opponents. I mean, it is bad stuff, okay? That's what you're going to find. Well, what you find in early American history is exactly the same. This was a very, very darkened place. And so as a result, when we understand in the flow of history, the importance, the fact that God loves these natives, that God cares about them and wants them to see the light of the gospel, We've flipped in our history to the point where we would actually defend the darkness as opposed to defend the light bearers. And we look at the light bearers as the problem. And so when you take that, remember uh, that uh, nice little, uh, what was it, a state or a nation up in Seattle area? Uh, it was called Chaz when it started, and then I think it became Chop. It's a very similar thing where depending on how you look at it, where, oh, they're noble savages, no, they're depraved is what it is. That is actually violence. This is lawlessness. This is rebellion. This is only going to lead to disaster. And so that one missionary comes in and the greatest cruelties are done to him. You know what? This is American history in a nutshell right there. That's what it's always been. And what you see is that which once was familiar. The spiritual powers, the dark powers that once were familiar on this country are trying to once again reclaim it. 
we see the same behaviors. This is not something that you support. This is not something that you fan into flame and say, please, more of that. The bloodline in Africa, the sacrifice needed to end the reign of terror. So what you see in Africa is you see a divide right down the middle. Islam is in the, uh, controls the northern uh, part of Africa and the southern part is basically Christian or uh, open to Christianity. And that line, and it's oftentimes called the bloodline, missionaries recognize that this encroachment of, of Islam was going to make it all the way through Africa unless they were willing to lay down their lives. And so what you see, and that's why it's called the bloodline, is the, the, the blood of missionaries all along that line were willing to be sacrificed so that this evil could be stopped in its progression. And that's exactly what happened. So throughout history, what we've seen is there's an understanding amongst the missionaries that to establish truth in any area, oftentimes it means sacrifice, extreme sacrifice. So this is something that I've actually heard Dan McConaughey uh, read uh, before, but when I was studying the bloodline in Africa, I came across this. This is from a young African pastor uh, that was, after he was martyred, this was found amongst his papers. And I think it's just called My Colors. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his and I won't look back. Let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adver adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until I'll know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Let me read that last line again. I can't, you have to make your last word sound right. My colors will be clear. For me, I want my colors to be clear. There's so much that is in ever-increasing fashion becoming incorrect for us to speak, for me to speak as a pastor. It's like, well, Eric, you're not supposed to say this anymore. How am I supposed to respond to that? I'm not supposed to say that anymore. What if it's true? Now, there's certain things I don't care about, and we've discussed that, like master bedroom. The fact that that may be changed, technically, I don't care. Okay, if we're going to call it, what, what, what do we come up with, Nate, the premier bedroom? The primary, the primary bedroom. This is the primary bathroom and the primary bedroom. Okay, I'm sure that will become incorrect pretty soon as well. Uh, so the point is, I want to make sure I fight the right battles, but where it comes to truth and representing truth, I want my colors to be clear. 
when it comes to even enunciating this country's heritage, I want my colors to be clear. I am not pro-America to the point that it's going to blur out my Christianity. First and foremost, I'm pro-Jesus. That's what I am. I am not going to defend America blindly, like, oh, whatever America is doing right now is fine. No, I actually care about my country, which is why I'm going to speak this. I think our nation is headed in the wrong direction. And so as a result, I'm not just going to pat it on the back because I'm an American or that because I'm a patriot. No, I do not turn a blind eye to sin in my soul, in the church of Jesus Christ, or in this country. I want to call a spade a spade. I want my colors to be clear. Jesus Christ is going to say in John 12, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now we understand as Christians, that's primarily referring to the grain of wheat, Jesus Christ, who is actually going to do exactly this, and he is going to give up his life that his life may multiply in others. But it's a principle. It's a principle that we adopt as lowercase grains of wheat, lowercase g grains of wheat. You see, it's a principle of sacrifice. It's a principle of giving up our life. This has been the mindset of missions throughout history until now. Something has obscured our view of historic Christianity just like it's obscuring our view of historic America. We have lost history, and therefore we are functioning in an alternate reality from how it works. This country was founded upon the grain of wheat principle. Missionaries are going to come over to this country, and the reason that the spiritual powers are going to shift in this country is because men will lay down their lives for the gospel. That's the history of our country, one that we oftentimes will not know about. And that's one of the reasons I'm giving this message, because it is so significant to me, and it is so important, I believe, for our own application of recognizing what it means to serve Jesus. The principle of the grain. It will remain alone unless it willingly lets go of its life. When it relinquishes its life and dies, then it multiplies exceedingly. So there is a life that you have inside of you. Jesus Christ has changed you. He has deposited his Holy Spirit within you. And the key for multiplying that, so that you're not alone in this thing called Christianity, is that you give up your life. Now, that doesn't always mean physical death, but it does always mean giving up your life. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you really desire to see the church of Jesus Christ increase in this world, it means that you have to give up. You have to give up comforts. You have to give up things that you have always felt were yours by right. You have to relinquish things. You have to choose to accept a more uncomfortable and inconvenient existence. And as a result, that is supposed to be part and parcel of our thinking as Christians. Grains of wheat. And I should have put a small g on this because I don't want to try and liken them to Christ in the fact that he was the grain of wheat. However, they are filled with Christ, moved by Christ for the motive of Christ. 
And that's, it's very, very precious to see. Men and women that lay down their lives in order that the kingdom of heaven might multiply exceedingly. So America before was a continent of darkness. There are spiritual powers that are now encroaching upon our country that are familiar to these shores. Lawlessness, fear, these are native to our country. They've hung out here for many, 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 many centuries, and then they were booted out. But now, because of what is taking place in our country, we are favoring that which was before the light came to this country, and we're saying we would rather return to that. We would rather return to chop than to have the heritage that we have of liberty. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jean de Breview, okay, I actually went to a site and I said, how do you pronounce Breview? And so I, I think I have that right. There's always French-speaking people in the audience that look at me and go, that, is, that really isn't correct. But to me, that sounds like what the guy said, okay, in the thing. So that, uh, Breview. Okay, so even if you speak French and you're looking at me funny, you can take that up with the guy on Google. Jean de Breview. He's a French missionary to the natives of New France. You'll see, you know, Columbus is going to sail the ocean blue in 1492. Okay, so this is giving you some, some idea of how long into this you're going to see this missionary movement, which is going to start at the same time. Even Columbus is coming over with the mindset that he's sharing this, he's going to share the gospel of Christ. Now, like I've said in the past, I don't know that Columbus led one person to the Lord. His motive was correct. His method, his functionality, very off. And he was very susceptible to greed, gold specifically, and control and power. And when those things are at the center of your Christian witness, you're probably not going to be very effective. Unless a man lays down his life. What Columbus is going to do, he's going to take up his life. He's going to preserve his life. When he gets fame, it goes straight to his head. And Columbus is not a guy I want us to emulate. The church at that time was extremely unhealthy. We're coming out of the dark ages, basically. I mean, we have, uh, we've, we've gone through a season in the Catholic uh, church that is so unhealthy that if you were to study that, you would say, yeah, you know, that's sort of like tribes <laughs> behaving in the way that they're, they're working. In other words, darkness was ruling the church, if you could imagine that. In other words, I would say that wasn't the true church. There's always a true church, but the church that was public was not actually the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus would say, I don't know you. <laughs> I, what do you have to do with bearing my name? And so this is actually the lineage that Columbus is going to be coming out of. It's not actually healthy, even though there is a strain of truth in it. So Jean de Breview, and then Isaac Jogis. I think I'm doing my best on that one too. I listened to the Google uh, uh, French translation on that one too. He's a French missionary to the natives of New France from 1607 to 1646. You're going to notice that they both are going to die within three years of each other. And that's because there's going to be an, uh, a movement uh, to exterminate these guys in and amongst the Native Americans. So John and Isaac, instead of calling him Jean, I'll call him John. Uh, that'll sound more American to us, don't you think? 
And so two men of many ready to be spent for Jesus. So I just picked these two. Jean de Breville, tall, powerfully built, and possessing a commanding presence. So in 1640, John sees a vision in the sky of a great cross slowly approaching over the forest lands towards the territory of the Iroquois. When his companions asked him about the size of this cross, he replied, large enough to crucify us all. So he's working with the Huron tribe, and the Huron tribe was far more receptive. The Iroquois tribe, not so much. And the Iroquois tribe was a constant uh, threat, and they were sort of the kingpin tribe. And so it was, it was almost like living on the streets of New York. I mean, this is like intense. You're, you're trying to survive, but you have gangs. And these gangs don't live by the rules of the American government. They live by their own rules. And so as a result, there, and there's no police. Uh, I mean, talk about going back to a time when you have no police. There's no one to enforce a higher law. And so as a result, it's uh, survival of the fittest. And the Iroquois are the fittest. So he sees it coming from the Iroquois territory, this cross in, in the sky. It's a vision he's seen. And how big is it, Jean? Large enough to crucify us all. Nine years later, he will have been killed by the Iroquois. And so it's interesting, just to, and a whole bunch of other uh, missionaries as well. In, in 1649, Jean is captured by the Iroquois. The tortures of the Iroquois. Now, I have done my best on this. Uh, you, could, you could say your best. Well, I wasn't feeling very good this morning. I was really weak for some reason while I was doing this part. And I mean, there's probably reasons why I was weak. All you have to do is hear it. Now, I'm giving you a very family edition of this. Here's what I can say. What happened to these missionaries is so demonic. It is so wrong. It is so evil, so dastardly. It can only be inspired by the powers of darkness. There is nothing to do with justice in it. This is the delight. The Iroquois, very specifically, their greatest thrill, like if you were to say, what's your favorite thing to do? It's like, oh, watch a football game. What's your favorite thing to do? Oh, I love to ice skate. What's your favorite thing to do? I love to shop. So Iroquois, what is your favorite thing? To hear the screams of our victims. Okay, so does that give you a little platform to reason from? This is evil. This is wicked. This is controlling our country. This is what the light is shining in the midst of. So the tortures of John, it, they were intended to cower him. See, they are seeing this boldness. All the other tribes fear the Iroquois. Jean de Breville doesn't fear them. You know how much that angers them? That this man and his followers do not fear? And so as, have you noticed even today, uh, like when, I, I made this statement at the beginning of the coronavirus. In all my life, I'm 49, fearlessness has always been a virtue in America until the coronavirus. And then suddenly it became hip to be fearful. And you were a threat if you didn't fear. It was like politically incorrect to suddenly be fearless. That is weird. And I remember notating it because it was right in the very beginning. And I was thinking, well, I'm not, I don't fear that. And then suddenly I felt this angry stare back. It's like, well, you're part of the problem then. 
You see, if you don't fear it, you could be a carrier because you're so you know, nonchalant about it. Isn't that weird? It's weird when fearlessness strikes a problem with someone. Well, it was striking a problem with the Iroquois. They want to take this down. So what do they want to do? They want to strike fear in him. And they're going to do a pretty good job of striking fear in us all these hundreds of years later. I mean, we're not even around the Iroquois. This guy's right in the, he's a captive of them. They want to make him scream. They want to prove that his God cowers to their God. So we have a standoff here, guys. So their highest pleasure was in the screams of their victims. Attempt number one, hot oil. This was to mock baptism. They're going to strip him and pour hot oil on him. Okay, now that's enough to kill most people. He is not going to scream. It is so unsatisfactory to the Iroquois. They want to hear the screams. But Jean will not scream. He will not give them the satisfaction. He is leaning on something other than his own natural powers for this. This is one of the most extraordinary series of events I have ever heard. Then they're going to, I'm just going to call it the iron collar. They're going to stick these pieces of iron in the fire until they're totally absorbed with that fire. And then they're going to wrap them around his neck. He will not scream. Attempt number three, we'll call it the flaming belt. It's a little more elaborate than that. But they're going to stick a belt around his waist and they're going to light it on fire. He will not scream. John doesn't scream, but he does speak. Listen to what he does. He has all his other missionaries around him and he calls out encouragement to his fellow captors. Don't give in. Rely on the power of Jesus now. I mean, that's the only thing he does. He won't scream, but he does give encouragement. He gives life. And that so enrages the Iroquois that they move on to the next level, the cut and cram. So they're going to mess with his mouth and cut out everything they can and cram a hot iron down his throat. He does not scream. He cannot scream. <laughs> Attempt number five, since that still won't silence him, they flay. And if you don't know what that means, then that's okay. Uh, I, I, took, I, I massively simplified this one. Uh, but he is dying fast, but he is winning. They cannot stop whatever this is. They feel it. The Iroquois are sensing they're dealing with something greater than themselves. Isn't that weird? They control. They're the big guys. And yet they can't control this. They can't beat it. Brevue has literally gone through what most people could never handle physically. And yet he's being buoyed up because God is using him to stun and to silence the Iroquois. They think they have control and power, but they are being defied by God Almighty through a man who is carrying the light of Christ in front of them, giving up his life so that they would see. And finally, the heart. I'm not going to go into what they did because it is far beyond what we probably should be meditating upon right now. But to the Indian, the heart is the center of who a man is and it, it, it holds what he has. So they want what this man has. So in the end, as he dies, they're going to take his heart they want what this man has. Isn't that an incredible statement? 
So whatever spirit power this man has, they want it. They have never witnessed such courage. Jean de Breville, in his dying, he wins them. There's something so powerful about our history, the history of this country, that is found in stories that most of us would never hear. They will never be recalled by our modern culture. But this is the foundation where darkness was destroyed in and through the sacrifice of men specifically because they were the ones being sent as missionaries, even though there were women uh, in, this, in these stories as well, that laid down their lives in a brutal, terrible fashion to win the lost. Isaac Jogas, a picture of self-sacrifice. Now you're gonna notice in this famous painting of, uh, of him, you're gonna notice that uh, something's wrong with his fingers and his thumb. That's purposeful. That's the reason they have his hands in that position because that's a symbol of part of his sacrifice, part of his life. 1642, many in his company are captured by the Iroquois. So here we got the Iroquois again. Remember the big boys, okay? The big, uh, this is, if you, it's like in World War II, you don't wanna be captured by the Japanese. It's very similar. Okay, it's just going to go bad for you and quick. The Iroquois are, are, are just mean. Uh, and they, they whenever you're around a group of people that finds delight in your screams, you don't want to be around them. You especially don't want to be a, a capture. So many in his company are captured by the Iroquois. Now, if, if all of you are captured by the Iroquois, and I know what the Iroquois do, what would I do? Now, most of us would say, Eric, you should run. Get away as, as far as you can. In the early church, there's a phenomenon that took place. And that is when congregants were arrested or captured, that oftentimes the pastor would surrender himself so he could join them. Isn't that, I just want you to ponder that for a second. To willingly choose to go in amongst those you love, to share in their sufferings. I mean, it's a picture of Christ, you have to admit. That's an amazing picture, but you're just giving up your life. I mean, you're just laying it down. You could keep it. But if that grain of wheat remains alone and, and preserves its life, it can't multiply. But when it relinquishes, and there's times when we know we need to relinquish our life. There are times when we know we have to give it up. Most, well, all of us are still living, right? So we've never come to the point where we knew it was time to give up our life. However, when it comes to that point, you study Christian history, you're gonna see that they all knew it was time. They knew it was the right thing to do. So Isaac is going to see his fellow missionaries in the hands of the Iroquois. They're legendary guys. You know how bad these guys are. And he is going to surrender himself to the Iroquois so that he can support his brothers in suffering the cruelties. His fingernails are ripped off. Sorry, I, I, I didn't really do a great job of familyizing uh, this little section. Uh, sorry, I, I, this is far less than that other section. And the natives chew down his fingers and cut off his four fingers and thumbs. Okay, we're, we're past that, guys. That, that's in the past now. Let's, let's stay focused. Ah. So this is what he says when he's asked, because you could say, how did anyone talk to him? How did this quote get out? Well, I don't want to give away how it got out because I'm just about to get to that. 
Could I indeed abandon them without giving them the help which the church of my God has entrusted to me? Flight seemed horrible to me. If it must be, I said in my heart that my body suffer the fire of earth in order to deliver these poor souls from the flames of hell. It is but a transient death in order to procure for them an eternal life. Okay, there's a lot in that, guys. That is a profound statement. First of all, he says, in order to deliver these poor souls from the flames of hell. You don't care about the Iroquois. Why is Isaac thinking about the Iroquois? Why does he care about their souls? They're evil. That's what is missing in all of this. To recognize that this is love that is carrying these men to reach these natives. It is not just the love for his other missionaries. It is the love for them. And in this situation, he is going to endure the, the same cruelties, but so that he could potentially win them. And so, but it is a transient death in order to procure for them an eternal life. Transient meaning short term. It is not permanent. You see, we are willing to go through a dying. It's not forever. It's not an eternal dying. It's a transient dying so that others can experience an eternal life. Missions, right there. Get this, America. This is the beginnings of our country. I am willing to give up my transient, I'm willing to go through a transient death in order that they may have an eternal life. I'm willing to have my life shortened so that they will have their life lengthened. The great escape of Isaac Jogues, actually I can't, or Jogues, I can't go into the story because I don't know anything about it other than he escaped. Okay, I know that's, I, I built it up and then that's all I can give you. How, <laughs> however, he's going to escape and he's going to make it back to France. And when he gets back to France, his story has gone before him and he's treated as a hero. This is so uncomfortable to this man. I don't know what personality to give to this man uh, other than maybe like a Mr. Rogers uh, type of personality where he's sort of shy. He's like, I, and he's so uncomfortable in France. All he wants to do is get out of there. He doesn't want to be a hero. He just wants to get back to the, the Indians. He loves the Indians. And he wants to get back to New France. Please, just let me go. And so, yes, he has to heal. He's, his body's in terrible shape. But the first thing he wants to do is get back to New France. Uh, you do know, Isaac, that they kill missionaries over there. But you already know his position. I'm happy to give up my life that they could live. So the bewildering resolve of Isaac Joges. I'm going back. What do, you, what do you mean you're going back? I'm going back. They need Jesus. This is like profound stuff. So he starts an organization, a mission, called the Mission of the Martyrs. That's actually what it's called. I almost called this message the Mission of the Martyrs, but that would probably be too scary for most people to click on. It reached the Iroquois by life or by death was their motto. To reach the Iroquois by life or by death. Listen to this. My heart tells me that if I have the happiness of being employed in this mission, I will go and not return. But I shall be happy if the Lord will complete the sacrifice where he had begun it and make the little blood I have shed in that land the earnest of what I would give. 
It is, and this is a quote from earlier, it is but a transient death in order to procure for them an eternal life. Jesus Christ is going to say in Mark 8.35, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verse 24 says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. So I just went through a list, and it was a very uh, familyized version of it, of what happened to this man. Uh, when we talk about Breview, what happened to him is so... By the way, Isaac is going to die a martyr when he comes back uh, in 1946. 19, yeah, no, 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 1646. But it's tough when you're doing uh, World War II and you're in the 1940s, and then you get in the 1600s, it's really confusing. But he's actually going to die a martyr. So he, is, he had the opportunity to stay in France. He's going to come back and lay down his life. Now, as I lay those things out for you, there's a weird measurement that takes place inside of us. And sometimes it strikes fear in us. It, it does. I remember reading Fox's Book of Martyrs and I would wrestle. And I felt so inferior to the task of doing this type of a thing. And I, I felt like I was looking inside of myself for some boldness or courage. You ever done that? It's like you're measuring yourself. It's actually the wrong way of doing it. What you need to do is measure Christ and his ability. You see, throughout history, it's not bold people that have changed the world. It's humble people that have given their life to Jesus who has filled them with boldness. It's not just strong, muscular people that have done the great deeds. It's even times weak people that come to Christ and say, Christ, you must be my strength. And so it is our dependence that actually makes us strong for the task. Do you remember when Corey Ten Boom asked her father, Casper, because I know we've talked about it probably many times in here, the, the famed question, Papa, how do I know that I'll be able to endure suffering and persecution if that ever came? How do I know that I won't shrink back? How can I know? Is there any way that I can be certain? And she said, he said, uh, Corey, when we're getting on the train, when do I give you the ticket? She goes, right before we get on. She goes, the same is true with your father in heaven. He knows what you need, and when you need it, you will have it. And for all of us, we need to recalibrate, not around what we feel is our capacity, what we feel we are able to accomplish. Because if we measure what we feel we can accomplish, none of us are going to the new world to share the gospel with the Iroquois. I, I don't know how many of you naturally feel like you're superhuman. I think we all sort of are in that weakened state when we hear stories like this, and we feel very vulnerable to cowardice. That's normal. But what you are supposed to do with that is entrust your life to Jesus. There is something that moved these guys. I mean, Isaac is going to go back. What does he have that we're missing? That's what I want. When I say the reset button in our entire mentality towards Christianity, I want that. I want to push a button if necessary and have it reset the hard drive. And it's like, okay, God, same truth, but with the right operating system. I think we just have a wrong operating system. Self, me, 
How can I preserve my life and my fortunes, my bank account? We need, how can I promote his glory? How can I love them well? They don't know Jesus. They're living in darkness. He feels for the Iroquois. We get mad at the Iroquois. He loves them. You see, the same is true with the different antagonists that are against us in our culture today. Most Christians end up taking a hostile view towards the liberal community and towards the LGBTQ community and towards Black Lives Matter. It's a hostility and anger and an angst instead of they're caught in darkness. They need the love of Jesus. We need a new operating system. The one that is actually in Scripture is the one we need. It's the one that Jesus prescribes. You're seeing it in Paul right here. Imagine Paul, I sit down with Paul and I read him all the things that happened with Jean de Breview. And I say, yeah, I mean, and where you're going, Paul, they could do the same to you. And then he says, but none of these things move me, Eric. <laughs> none of these things move me. We're like, uh, Paul, what, are you human? He is. But he has a different operating system. He is thinking different. He knows that God will be faithful and supply him with everything he needs when he needs it. You're expecting to have this courage and this ability to walk through difficulties and tortures right now as you're sitting in a chair. Instead of recognizing you will have that when you need it. This morning, as I was putting this together, actually copying and pasting that scripture, I was so weak I could hardly function. I remember I had the thought, it's like, should I call Nathan and tell him that maybe he needs to just sort of, sort of lead to, I couldn't even type. Something was weird in my body this morning, right? And I, I'm still blaming it on the fact that I painted all day yesterday and some, some effects from all those fumes. And yet, there's that same thing, and I've seen it so many times in, in, in Ellerslie history, that when I just defy it, and I rise up and I say, but God will give me grace. When I was driving in, Leslie's like, are you going to be able to drive? And I go, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. And then as I'm coming in, Leslie calls and she says, are you sure you, sh you should be doing this? I go, unless some mountain ends up in front of my way, I'm planning on giving a message this morning. But I always know that I give, have grace to do what I'm called to do. And this is a burden message for me. So if God's going to give me the burden, I fully expect that he's going to enable me to carry it out. And by the way, I feel great. How does that work? But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Pause. Key line. I think we consider, we count our lives dear to ourselves, as opposed to saying, Lord, let it be dear to you instead of to me. I trust you with my life. My life is no longer my own. It was bought. So therefore, I'm not going to preserve it. I'll let you preserve it. I'll let you take it, spend it. So that I may finish my race with joy, says Paul, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is Revelation 2.10. This is Jesus Christ speaking to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Don't you love that line? It's not one of those uh, lines we usually you know, frame and stick on our refrigerator or on our wall. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. See, we like the part that says do not fear, 
We like that. that that's, that's pleasant. You know, it's encouraging to us. What we want to do is trim off the latter half of that sentence. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. I, I'm an American. I don't suffer. I, I, I don't, we're, we're a different version of Christianity today. That's exactly our problem. You see, we have deluded ourselves into thinking that Christianity has shifted over time. That the requirements of the Christian, that the expectations of the Christians are different today than they were then. However, we need to hear this. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Isn't that, if you were to think about it, if you knew you were about to suffer something, then that has value to you. If you don't think you're about to suffer something, then you skip over that line. Well, that's not for me. I'll, I'll take the do not fear segment of it, but we'll leave the rest uh, you know, for the dog uh, to eat up. But I'm not about to chew on that. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. There is something in Christian history about being faithful until death that is very, very significant. Jean de Breville is going to face trials that are beyond what most of us have ever dreamed or imagined. In fact, I would say, yeah, we probably shouldn't do much dreaming and imagining about it. It doesn't help us, right? But he is going to face trials and difficulties the best the devil can concoct. And yet, he's not broken. He is faithful until death. Is there something special about this man? Is there something about him that was just wired to do better than we would do? His secret, guys, is Jesus. His secret is that he is willing to lean on Jesus, and he understands God's going to show him a cross coming from the Iroquois territory nine years earlier. He is going to prepare his soul to say, yes, Lord. Yes, I'm willing to suffer. What does he know? He knows the Iroquois want to prove his God a coward. They want to boast that they serve more powerful uh, things than their God, than his God. So he is in a position to give witness. And yet what does he need to do? Be faithful until the end. How are you going to do that? You need something outside of yourself. Don't dig into your own pockets to find it. You need to trust that the living God supplies everything you need to be able to do it. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Oh, sorry about the quotes there. It shouldn't have a quote at the end of that. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christianity 101. We are being sent out like sheep among wolves. However, we do not fear. In fact, we rejoice. There is nothing the enemy can devise that can actually win our soul, that can actually defeat what Christ is establishing within us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. We as Christians function from the springboard of faith and confidence that what we serve is greater. Who we serve rules all, and all things are underneath his feet. But our motive is not retaliation. 
It's not to harm, it's to love. So we do not cower, but we actually overcome fear with love. It's interesting because one of the greatest conquerors of all time, his name is Alexander the Great, used to bow down and, and pay homage and, and worship and give, present uh, sacrifices to the god Phobos. You ever heard the word phobia? It's fear. That's who he sacrificed to, was fear, because fear was the god of all war. And every soldier feared. And so as a result, it was normal to fear. However, you would sacrifice to fear so it would be on your side and they would fear you more than you would fear them. You see, God has changed everything at the cross. You know the great strength, or we could say the God of war, is Jesus Christ, but it's love. Love is actually the greatest power. And when we come in love, it nullifies the power of fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. You want to change a fearful nation? We must be moved as Jean de Breville was moved, as Isaac Joges was moved to love. We need to once again establish the mission of the martyrs and to recognize that we need to go where the gospel is needed and to give what we uniquely have Father, our physical, natural man is a coward. But Lord, may that spirit of adventure, that spirit of love, that spirit of courage, that spirit of boldness awaken within us, fan it into flame where there's literally a smile on our souls to function as we were designed by the Holy Spirit to function. Reset our hard drive. Put in a new operating system. Do whatever is necessary, Lord Jesus, to make us ready as the church to do what the church must do. Here we are, Lord. We belong to you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.